Welcome, everyone, to a very uh, special episode of The George Sanders Show. Usually on the show, there's only, I don't know, a fraction of it that makes you want to kill yourself. But today, every moment of this episode is going to make you want to, you know, kill yourself. And probably people around you, too. Uh, and, not, we're, and not just because of us or the sound quality of our show. Right, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's content. It's the whole kit and caboodle. Um, today, we're going to be discussing two films, uh... One is a remake of the other one. Uh, the first one is Harakiri, uh, Masaki Kobayashi's 1962 film. Uh, and then we'll be discussing uh, Takashi Miike's remake from 2011 uh, with the subtitle uh, Death of a Samurai. Uh, we'll also be discussing the life of uh, Akura Kurosawa and his work um, tying with the samurai theme, which uh, is actually the reason we're discussing samurai film is uh, there's a current series going on at the Sith Cinema in Seattle. Every Monday night, I think through the end of October, they're running samurai films. They ran Seven Samurai. They actually ran Harakiri. Um, so we, you know, we just steal ideas from other people, basically. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Got to get them somewhere. Got to get them somewhere. Uh, and anyway, we will also be discussing our Cinema Central samurai films. Uh, with me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello. Are you packed for your trip to Vancouver? No. When do you leave? Tomorrow morning. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> does that make you want to kill yourself? Uh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about the, the original 1962 version of Harikiri. Yeah, let's start with a clip. from Harakiri by director Masaki Kobayashi. Uh, the film came out in 1962 at a time when uh, samurai films, along with uh, with other similar genres in other countries, were going through a lot of revisions as directors were kind of rethinking the, the kind of basic uh, ideologies and tenets behind various action genres like the Western or the crime film or, in Japan, the samurai film. And what Harakiri is basically about is uh, Tetsuya Nakadai, plays a man who goes to, he's a ronin, a, a masterless samurai, and he's been living in poverty for about a decade. And he goes to a, uh, a big house of one of the, the ruling samurai clans and asks permission to kill himself on their grounds in order to commit ritual suicide in order to kind of regain his honor as a samurai. 
And this is apparently a, a ploy that a lot of people have been doing, a lot of poor samurai have been doing at the time in order to uh, guilt the, uh, the clans into giving them jobs or giving them money. But this particular clan, the Ii clan, uh, decides that they're not gonna they're not gonna give in to this uh, suicide extortion scheme, and they're gonna force him to kill himself. And at that point, we get a flashback to an earlier Ronin, and we we learn his story. He had tried this this same thing, and they had forced him to kill himself. But he had sold off his uh, swords for money and replaced them with bamboo. So they forced him to kill himself with a bamboo sword. And, and harakiri or, or, or seppuku is basically you, you disembowel yourself with your sword, and once you've disemboweled yourself enough, a nice guy chops off your head. That's the way I'm going to go. So uh, the, the master of this particular house tells Nakadai this story, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. And then Nakadai tells him his story. And it turns out that the original guy is his son-in-law, and they had lived in poverty, and the son-in-law had come begging for money because his wife and uh, child, Nakadai's grandchild, were uh, were deathly ill, and they needed money for a doctor. And the the cruel, rich samurai turned them away and, and forced him to punish himself. And yeah, that's basically the, the plot of the film. Nakadai has a, a scheme for revenge. Yes. It's not a happy movie <laughs> at all. It, it's one of the most depressing, if not the most depressing, samurai movies I've ever seen. How did you like it? I, I thought it was great. Uh, I like, I mean, there's a, you know, it's not uncommon for samurai films to be pessimistic. You know, I mean, the ending of Seven Samurai, you know, kind of sums it all up there. But yeah, this is a particularly bleak story. Um, but. That's okay. I don't mind bleak. I, I, you know, I usually find comfort in that kind of stuff. Um, and I actually really responded to this movie um, for the most part. I, I, you know, it's it's not it's hard to love it completely, um, probably because it's it's relentless. <laughs> but I really appreciate it, and I think uh, I think every facet of the film is is really uh, wonderful. Um, you know, the filmmaking is top-notch, and I think the performances are really great here, too. Uh, Nakadai is, is particularly um, impressive here. For me, what, what kind of latched onto my brain with this film, watching it, and I don't usually do this, but uh, I'm not David Bordwell or something, but I don't really time shots or, or think about stuff like that, you know. It, but watching this, and I think, I could be wrong, you can correct me, uh, I think Kobayashi has... Um, had a history with like art, and I think he painted for a while and did some stuff like that. I have no idea. Oh well, it would not surprise me. I'm going to go out there and say he did. Sure. Um, and uh, his frames are are very painterly composed. Yeah, or... and and he'll hold the shot. I you know I'm hazarding a guess here. I think the average shot length in this movie is at least 20 seconds long, probably between 20 and 30 seconds long. Um, and he and he just lets these images sit there. And uh, and there's very little movement within the frame. You know, the the, the movie is a lot of just like you know guys uh, sitting around and, and one of them talking to the other one. 
And that kind of, like, you know, in the abstract, that kind of sounds boring or, you know, because of the lack of, you know, abrupt editing or whatever. Uh, but it's riveting the whole time. The camera moves a lot. It even, does. Even though the, uh, like, the characters aren't. Or uh, there's lots of, uh, of pans across the, uh, the hallways of this house with these, uh, these, these very ornate screens with, uh, with paintings on them. And the house is all very rigid and structured in right angles. And, and Kobayashi just kind of uh, pans along them. And uh, he also uses a, an odd technique, which is uh, he'll he'll push in on a character as they're talking, uh, but it, it's kind of like a slow push in, and he does it a lot all throughout the film. And well, he also there I, I can't remember exactly what part, but he he zooms in on somebody and then cuts to the back of that person and zooms in again, like it's like a dual zoom. It actually reminded me of something that uh, that uh, Mikio Naruse. Uh, an earlier Japanese director did in his early films in in the 1930s. He would have these these kind of wild push-ins uh, to kind of heighten melodramatic tension, but he would do it again and again and again. And in the so in the same scene, you'd have like three repeated push-ins on the same character, and then cut to the character they're talking to, and then do the same thing. So it's just like this really kind of disorienting and, and super melodramatic effect. And Kobayashi's doing kind of the same thing but it's much more slow and it's it's not as uh, as obviously noticeable as the the Naruse push-ins were yeah well my note you know i think i wrote down that um when the camera does move it's very expressive and and i think you know you know the tendency nowadays i mean you know and it's not across the board but you know you get your Michael Bay's, you get your Tony Scott's, you get your people and i'm not saying that this is wrong this is bad or whatever but you you know these fast cuts you, you don't get a chance to linger on anything, you know, and, and in something like this, you really kind of get a chance to kind of languish in this world. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the deliberate pace kind of gives a sense of like the weight and the, and the history and the, and the past and just kind of the, the restriction of, of the world that they live in. Uh, it's set in, I think, 1634, which is at the very beginning of the uh, Tokugawa uh, dynasty, the where... I don't want to get off on a tangent about Japanese <laughs> history, but uh, basically, one one uh, one clan ended up defeating all of these other clans and basically unifying Japan under one central shogun. And in the process of consolidating power, ended up eliminating a lot of his his previous rivals, which is how the Nakadai character becomes Ronin in the first place. His his master gets uh, uh, exiled on on trumped up charges, basically, and. Part of the, the way that the, the Tokugawa dynasty maintained their control for the next 250 years or so was through the, the strict enforcement of this samurai code of honor, which had been around for hundreds of years, but the Tokugawa were really fanatical about it. And um, you see that in, in this movie, and it's, it's the, the strictness of, of the code and the strictness of the, the EA's enforcement of the code that leads to... Uh, the the son-in-law's death and and all of the basic events of the film. So the the film is uh, is very much critiquing this kind of samurai code. And in Japanese films, especially in, in the post-war period, attacking the samurai code is basically attacking fascist Japan because the that was the same ideology they used to justify their expansion into invasion of China and Korea and, and throughout East Asia. Um, was this kind of militarist samurai epic. Do you think it effectively critiques 
Yeah, well, I think Samurai you know, uh, I think the you know the best part of this movie is the very end where it shows. Yeah. So, well, basically, what happens is uh, Nakadai's character ends up, you know, trying to kill as many, you know, take as many guys out as he can before he gets killed or before he kills himself. Right. Um, and so he's he's thrashing around with his sword and he's chopping people and he breaks into, um, you know, breaks through a wall and there's this um, kind of totem of uh, a samurai armor that's, this, that we see at the armor. very beginning of the movie. Yeah, we, it's uh, it's like the, the icon of the house. It's like the relic and it's the shot of it opens the film and it's like surrounded oh, by that folk shot and, and is smog great. and it and, or smog <laughs> smoke and, and fog and it's and it's very eerie. Like it's it's this it's the symbol of, of history and tradition. I don't know how he got how he did that shot I, I, because because it's all it's all black but you see the the, the fog but then like suddenly the lights come on and the fog just completely disappears and you're in I mean it's just it's fantastic it's great it's movie magic it's movie magic <laughs> it's magical but anyway so the end of the movie he he breaks into this room and he he kind of grabs this um, the the samurai armor and he's hoisting it along with him as he's kind of cutting people down before he ends up killing himself and then he kills himself and the head of this household, of this um, group, ultimately we see him telling his, you know, lackeys to go spread the word that this man just, you know, committed, you know, ritual seppuku and it was, it, you know, went like normal and that the guys that he shamed and, you know, who also, you know, ended up dying, that they died of an illness. So he's, you know, it's kind of like print the legend or, you know, keep, keep right. the it's, myth perpetuating. It's, it's very much like, like Fort Apache right. where... Uh, and the the John Ford film where where Henry Fonda has led this disastrous charge and and at the end John Wayne tells the story to the newspapers that paints Fonda as some kind of hero in fighting the Indians when in fact he was like this idiotic martinet. Right. So I think that like what you were saying, I think that 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 scene is pivotal to that critique where it's showing that these guys are talking about honor and they're talking about their legacy and what this all means, but in the end, they're willing to just lie and cheat to get their, you know. Yeah, uh, the, the long middle section of the film, uh, both versions of the film are, are just over two hours long, and about an hour of it in the middle is basically chronicling the uh, the life of, of Nakadai and and his his family as they're very poor, and they you know they're happy and then they get sick and and you know. Uh, but the the central conflict of the film is is that between between the Nakadai character and the retainer and their debate over what the what the the code demanded that they do because in the retainer's eyes they were totally justified in in their actions in forcing him to kill himself with his bamboo sword and what Nakadai is trying to get him to admit is isn't that, you know, the code is a lie, that honor is stupid, and that these people are evil. He doesn't want to admit that, because he says, I agree, it was a despicable thing that he did to come here and try and extort money out of you, but you could have handled it better. <laughs> and that's basically as far as he's willing to go in critiquing this kind of uh, fascist ideology. He's just like, you know, did you have to be such a dick about right. it? Right, right. Like, he asked, he asked you, you know... Uh, he, uh, uh, Chijiwa, the son-in-law says, you know, okay, I'm going to kill myself. Can you give me a day or two? Right. And I promise I will come back and kill myself. Right. And, and they, and they wouldn't let him. And that's basically Nakadai's complaint is that they should have given him a day because, you know, if he wouldn't have asked for it, if it wasn't important. Right. 
Absolutely. Um, and I don't want to get into... I don't want to start comparing the two films this early. I think we'll get to the comparisons later on. Yeah. Um, but I feel like this, the, the remake of the film, one of its flaws is it, is it turns these, the, the samurai um, into... They're much more bullies, and it's, it's a little more overt um, and yeah, melodramatic. And here... You know, you can kind of you kind of see their argument. You know, even though they force this guy to kill himself with his bamboo sword, they don't even give him a, a nice, a decent sword to do it with. Yeah. Um, you know, but I did like that in this one. But they're they're offended by the bamboo sword. Like they're right. they're deeply offended by that because the the sword for the samurai is 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 really important. It's like symbolic of their soul, and for him to have pawned it and replaced it with a bamboo sword is is deeply offensive. Right. And and so in forcing him to kill himself with the bamboo sword, they are they are punishing right. him. They're shaming him into But yeah, I mean which which just goes show goes to show their disconnect because you know, he sold it because he needed to, you know, uh feed his, you know, wife and, and infant. Right, but by the, the strict demands right. of the code, the wife and the infant are irrelevant. Like I agree. They I, they I come second to his honor as a samurai. Right. Watching watching this movie, I, I couldn't help think about current events, and and this is not a political podcast. And I don't <laughs> get off on a tangent here, but at, at this week as I'm watching Obamacare, uh, Ted Cruz is doing his fake 24 hour filibuster to prevent people from getting health insurance. Yeah, and basically what this what Harakiri is about is how there's no social safety net. When the samurai fall into poverty, they can't afford a doctor. They need health insurance, right. but they don't have anything. Right. And it's the the uh, the idea that your ideology is more important than social welfare of, of being the lives people, of, of yeah. allowing sure. sick people to see a doctor. Uh, it's the same the same uh, ideology that motivates the the EE clan is what's motivating Ted Cruz because he has this ideological position that the government should not be involved in healthcare and he's putting that ahead of the fact that twelve thousand people die every year because they don't have health insurance. Right. So I, I don't I don't think that this this film is just about Japanese politics in the fifties or about Japanese politics in the in the sixties. Oh no, yeah. Like it's relevant to anybody. Any any uh, culture that puts ideology over basic human needs, basic human concerns. Absolutely, it, yeah. It's you know, it's it's a universal tale, you know, told, um, you know, in in a, in a very specific time and place. But yeah, it could play out anywhere. Absolutely. Do you think we should give Obama a samurai sword? Send him, I, I send him into Congress. I do not <laughs> think that that would help. I don't think that would be appropriate. <laughs> it would be an awesome movie, though. That'd be way better than Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. It would be like the the Simpsons remake of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where where Mel Gibson pulls out the machine gun and starts shooting everybody. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It'd be just like that. <laughs> another th- uh, um, another thing I want to touch on before I forget to, um, and, and this goes back to that opening scene um, where it kind of goes through those empty hallways and stuff. And, and then ultimately lands on that um, samurai armor. But um, the music in this thing... And who who was the composer again? Uh, Toru Takamitsu. It is... It, it, I think it might be my favorite in any samurai film that I've seen. Um, especially in that opening scene. There's this... It's this, like, kind of relentless momentum, like, chugging kind of droning thing that actually sounds really contemporary. It kind of reminds me of... Uh, 
like the most recent like Swans albums, where it's just this kind of like nine minute, you know, just like chugging along, um, and it's and it's just really expressive and fan- it's just wonderful. Great. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a he's a great composer. He's one of the the better of the uh, latter 20th century composers, at least according to Alex Ross, who knows a lot about classical Alex music. Alex Ross does know a lot about, yeah, music. Um, I and think we'll, there's we'll, a section on him in one of Alex Ross's books. Probably. Yeah. Alex Ross is great. The I best mean, he's, he's, New Yorker critic. Yes. Without <laughs> a doubt. Uh, yeah, he's he's done a, 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 few other, a few other soundtracks in addition to actual, you know, classical composition. I think I was just looking on IMDb. I think he did um, Ron. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and what's what's also great is that in this film, and once again, I'm going to kind of dip into the next movie here for a second. Uh, the music is very, you know, sp- sparingly used here, mm-hmm. um, which is not the case in the other one. And uh, I, you know, it's much more effective here. Yeah, the the later film was more traditionally composed. Like, there's not a lot of of scores, especially as early as 1962, with like ultra modern, modernist, you know, minimalist orchestral scores right so it's, it's very unusual that 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 he would be that he would be working this early in a film so and it's really effective it's really really effective one last thing uh, we should talk about uh tetsuya nakadai who i think in in harakiri gives one of the great performances of of the 20th century like he's just he's a a great actor um you you know him from from ron or, or kagamusha he also plays the villain in yojimbo and sanjuro he plays a very different role in in Nerusse's When a Woman Ascends the Stairs, where he's uh, he's this very cool modern figure. He almost like a an uh, Alain Delon type, but yeah, I just he's he's terrific here. He he brings some much needed humor mm-hmm. to the part where he's just kind of you know sarcastic and well, it's just seeing him with the baby. You know, yeah. it's great. He you know he really gets all googly eyed and. You know, he's very happy to see the kid. Yeah, and he, stuff. He, he does. He conveys like the full range of emotions, whereas uh, a, a lesser actor maybe doesn't pull off the the anger or or the humor as well. Yeah, and there there are scenes here that you don't think are crucial when you're watching it until you see the remake. And there's a, there's the scene with him. I think it's right at the beginning of his flashback when he tells them that he actually knows. Uh, Chijua, and uh, it shows him with his his friend talking about their their two kids, and they're just hanging out. You know, he's like shooting his arrows um, at a target or whatever, and but they just have this easy rapport, and it's very laid back, and it shows that he's not this stone cold killer that you see in the beginning. He's he's laid back. He's talking with his friend. You know, they're just kind of shooting the breeze. He's a regular guy. He's a regular guy. You know, Um, and that really works wonders for, you know, his character and just, you know, to show the, the plight that he is now in. He's great. Uh, have, is this the, the first Kobayashi film that you've seen? It is. I mean, I've been wanting to see the human condition stuff, um, but I I, think, yeah, I just I haven't. think uh, Nakadai stars in that. I, I have the human condition. It's like a, a massive nine-hour, three-part movie. Yeah. I bought it years ago. I haven't, uh, haven't watched it yet. Um, I think um, Samurai Rebellion is also playing the Sith series it may have already played that one's really good that's uh that's uh Tishiro Mifune and a, a very similar kind of story where it's he's rebelling against the uh the dictate to to kill himself mm-hmm. which he believes is irrational if I remember correctly hence the samurai rebellion right he's a samurai <laughs> and he is rebelling interesting <laughs> 
uh, uh, Quidon is a, a collection of, of ghost stories that he did. It's like four different stories melded into one, and I've watched half of it, and it's really good, but I, I fell asleep and I didn't finish it. He's not mentioned as often or as in the same breath as, you know, your Kurosawa or Ozu. And I mean, I, yeah, is he's, that not, part- he's not one of the big four. Right. He's kind of like a, uh, I don't know if it's just like a generational thing. Like he, he came later than the guys who started in the silent era. And he was, he was, uh, wasn't as prolific or as popular as Kurosawa. And then in the in the sixties, you get like a Japanese new wave where everyone is kind of rejecting everyone from the previous generation. So I think Kobayashi might have gotten lost in the shuffle, where he has basically like this ten year period from the mid fifties to the mid sixties, where he's pretty great. But I don't know that he did a whole lot outside of that. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, this is definitely a worthy film to add to the you know the canon of great samurai film. Yeah, it's 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 a, a good movie to watch once, and this was the second time I watched it. So, <laughs> well, I watched I watched this and the remake in the same day, which wow. <laughs> heavy duty. I'm, uh, I'm glad you survived. It was a tall cup of coffee, I'll tell you that much. Uh, well, without further ado, let's take a little break. Uh, we're going to listen to the Grave Diggers now with the song One Eight Hundred Suicide. at all yeah it was uh the rizza uh prince paul uh and two guys whose name i can't remember off the top of my head but uh basically they they all were kind of in the 80s they kind of had careers with def jam and some of these labels but the label kind of didn't know what to do with them and they kind of talked about hey we should like form a group or whatever and we'll you know and they invented this thing called horrorcore and they called themselves the grave diggers they all took on different names like grim reaper gate Keeper or Crypt Keeper or something like that. The Riz is the Resurrector. Uh, Prince Paul. It's great, you know? And so, uh, and then of course, Riz and Prince Paul went on to bigger and better things. And so it kind of became a big deal when they released their album, uh, Six Feet Deep, um, in uh, 97. And yeah, it's, it's a great record. It's, it's one of a kind. It's, it, you know, they just, they really play up this grave digger theme. So check it out. Right on. Uh, in uh, in news this week, there's a new Ron Howard movie, and it's actually gotten rave reviews. It's getting coming, reviews. coming out of Toronto, and I don't believe it. I, <laughs> uh, What's your favorite Ron Howard movie? I haven't liked a Ron Howard movie since The Paper. 
But I have seen Far and Away more times than I would care to admit. And I don't know how much that has to do with Ron Howard or just Nicole Kidman, but... Or Tom Cruise. Uh, <laughs> I, I think my favorite, I mean, I, you know, to be honest, I haven't seen that many Ron Howard films because, you know, his Da Vinci Code stuff, I, that doesn't, you know, appeal terrible. to me at all. But I'd probably go Apollo 13. You know. Yeah, it's okay. It, yeah, it's okay. I prefer The Paper. Paper is actually a pretty good movie. I haven't seen The Paper. It's got Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton's great. Well, I want to see Night Shift. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this the other day, you know. If you had asked me in 1988 who would have the better career, Michael Keaton or Tom Hanks, would have said Michael Keaton. All the way. Nine times out of ten. Well, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know what happened. Michael Keaton's a much better actor than Tom Hanks. I Why remember, did Tom Hanks become Tom Hanks? Why I, didn't Michael Keaton? I don't know. I do remember, and you know, this is out of the words of some random guy, but uh, at the Metro once when we were working at the movie theater, some guy, I, for, I think we were doing a press screening of something and, it, and Michael Keaton was in it and some guy said I overheard us mention Michael Keaton and he, and he said Michael Keaton man that guy's a total jerk and he told some story about being on a set with him and Michael Keaton was just a total jerk whatever <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> that's my Michael Keaton anecdote is some random guy that was buying a popcorn said that guy's a jerk okay yep you heard it here first breaking news movie <laughs> star is a jerk to a nobody <laughs> But no, I like Michael Keaton. I think he's great. Um, you know, um, in Jackie Brown, and uh, I think his Batman is underrated. I think his Batman yeah. is better than Christian Bale's Batman. Yeah. Um, Beetlejuice. Yeah, Beetlejuice. Mr. Mom. Miss. Oh, Miss. I really like Mr. Mom. Yeah. Multiplicity. Yes, no, <laughs> I haven't actually seen. I've seen that movie. There's a lot of Michael Keatons in that movie. And it's, it's <laughs> Jack Frost. Okay, so I think we're we're seeing where Michael Keaton's career derailed here. I like how this went from uh, Ron Howard's a mediocre director to let's just name every Michael Keaton movie. <laughs> Michael Keaton's much better actor than Ron Howard. Didn't he direct a movie, Keaton, recently? I, I, have, I have no idea. I think he did. Probably. All right. Uh, he's been doing like some some weird indie things lately that I haven't seen. He directed The Merry Gentleman in two thousand eight. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Tyler McDonald's in it. Well. <laughs> the only other news we got going on this week is that I'm going to Vancouver tomorrow to go to the film festival, and I'm very excited. I'm very excited, too, because then I don't have to come down here to talk into a computer for two hours at a time. Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> for that as well. I'm the one who has to edit it, which means I got to not only do I have to listen to it when we record it, but I have to listen to it again when I edit it. Oh, you'd listen to it all the time. You'd listen to it when you take a shower. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to be there for a week, and I've got a, a big list of movies I want to see over at uh, my blog, not the George Sanders show. Oh, you're pimping yourself now. My, huh? my, my personal blog, and I've also got uh, a couple kind of preview reviews up on. Uh, some recent uh, Johnny Toe and, and Hong Sang Soo movies. I have to say, can I can I interject here for a second? Sure. I really like your Blind Detective uh, write up you did. Yeah, oh, thank you. Good stuff. Yeah. And I you know I don't praise you often, so no. you know good job. Thanks. Do more of that. Uh, yeah, I'll be writing about all of the uh, the films that I see while I'm there because they're they're giving me free tickets in exchange for writing about them. So yeah, you do <laughs> I, it. I have to actually you, do it. <laughs> if you want to go back next year, uh, so yeah, you can watch uh, watch my blog for for Vancouver updates or probably on the tw the Twitter, huh? 
definitely on the Twitter there you go. at the end of cinema. Yeah, with that, let's uh, move on to our Cinema Central Samurai movies. Yes, let's. So obviously, you and I have said time and again that the best movie of all time is Seven Samurai. Did you, did you allow it to join your list here? No, I, I didn't want to be to be so obvious. I, I stayed away from, from the Kurosawas. Okay. Uh, what was your selection, Sean? I'm, I'm going obscure, and I'm going with Humanity and Paper Balloons by Sadao Yamanaka. Everybody's seen that. <laughs> uh, Yamanaka was uh, started in the, in the 1930s. He was kind of a contemporary of, of Ozu Mizuguchi, a few years older than Kurosawa. And Humanity and Paper Balloons uh, kind of takes place in this, in this slum in the uh, 19th century. And there's a lot of poor people that live there, and one of them is, is a ronin, a, a kind of very poor, penniless samurai, much like the characters in the, in the Harakiri movies. And he keeps going around to, to various families, trying to get a job, and, and fails to do so. Um, Unusual for a movie about, you know, grinding 19th century poverty, especially in, in Japanese films. It's actually really funny and, and fun and, and kind of hopeful, despite all of the horrible things that, that keep happening to the characters in this community and, and the horrible conditions under which they're living. It's, it's a really terrific movie. And, and Yamanaka was one of the... He only made a few films. He was one of the, the leading directors of the period he was starting to be. And then he got drafted and sent off to China, where he died, I think, of uh, disease. Mm. So we only, we, there's only a, like a, a handful of surviving films. And I think uh, the Masters of Cinema label just released them all a few months ago. Mm. So uh, definitely, it's, I don't know if it's like the essential samurai movie, but it's a great samurai movie that not a lot of people have seen. So no, that's a great pick. That, that's my name. All right. Well, I am going pretty obvious here. I am going to go with uh, Kurosawa. Uh, the question is, what Kurosawa do you do? And I don't, I don't know if this is... Okay. I went with Sanjuro, okay. which is from the same year as Harakiri. Very different movie uh, from that. And, I, you know, I don't know if Sanjuro... I don't know if I prefer that to Yojimbo, which, you know, is... The, the film that came before it with the same character in it. Um, I've only seen them both once. I own that Criterion uh, double set that came out, I don't know, five years ago or whatever. But what I like about Sanjuro is Sanjuro is what I want out of a sequel or a remake or whatever, and we'll discuss this later in the program, I'm sure, um, where Sanjuro, sure, it uses the same character, but it's a totally different movie, and it's tonally different. The, yeah. the story is completely different. You know, nowadays you get, you know, your Iron Man 3 hits the same beats as your Iron Man 2s or your Iron Man 1s or whatever. And, you know, it's just a continuation of this thing. But Sanjuro, it, it stands apart. And it's a lot of fun. It's really goofy. You know, it's much goofier than Yojimbo. Um, and it builds to this ridiculously violent climax that you don't see coming. And it's just it's just great. Um, and, and so, you know... It's obvious, but it's such a fun movie. It is, and it's uh, for a long time I actually preferred it to Yojimbo just because it is so much funnier and, and so much more charming. Like Yojimbo is like a darkly cynical movie. Mm -hmm. It's it's more of a like a film noir really than than anything else. There is a black humor to it. Yeah, um, and whereas Sanjuro, it, it's got the Toshiro Mifune's 
uh, man with no name character kind of herding around these these youthful samurai who don't really know what they're doing and they're like always like moving in 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 synchronicity as they're like getting ready for battle and he just kind of looks at them and rolls his eyes yeah. and yeah it's it's this it's a it's a much gentler undermining of the the samurai code than than say harakiri sure it's more just kind of nudging it in the ribs and saying you guys are kind of silly you're kind of goofy yeah, yeah as opposed to you know you're horrible human being, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And that and that final shot, the the final showdown um, with uh, is it Tetsuya Nakadai plays? I uh, think yeah, the opposing yeah. general. He like chases Mifune's character down, and they meet on this on this street. Yeah, long road, and they're going to have a, a duel, and they stand there for a long time facing each other with their swords drawn, and then and the the way that they fight is is very realistic for like actual samurai fights. There's not a lot of like parrying and thrusting like like a European fencing match sure. would be. It's basically just like one stroke and the guy's dead. And and that's what happens here is that uh, is faster than the eye can actually see. Mifune kills him, and there's this huge <laughs> gush of blood that just spurts out of him. It's like just drenches the screen in, in it's blood. It's like a geyser, and it's uh. It's 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 shocking and it's funny it's and hilarious. it's it's incredibly influential. Like if if you watch Hong Kong movies from the late sixties and the seventies, you know that they saw this scene in Sanjuro and said, "I want to do that." Right, and I want to do it over and over and over and over again. Yeah, you know, and, that, and the reason it works so well here is it only happens once and it happens at the end. You right. know, um, obviously some people ran with it a little too far, but um, yeah, it's a great movie, and uh, you know, it, it's hard to pick. You know. Great samurai movie because there are so many wonderful ones, um, but yeah. you know Kurosawa, kind of a master. Yeah, so let's let's talk about Kurosawa. Let's he's, do it. He's our person of the week. He is, um, and we picked Kurosawa because he's you know the most famous, and he's got a huge body of work. He's also well represented in the in the Sith samurai. Yeah, they're doing three of his. They're doing. Uh, they did Seven Samurai, they're doing Yojimbo, and I think they're closing their series with Hidden Fortress. Mm. Um, That's another fun one. Hidden Fortress is good. I need to see it again. Um, it's another one that I've only seen once. And I was a little underwhelmed because it's not as good as some of his others, but it's... It's, it's not as ambitious as, as right. Seven Samurai or, right. or even Yojimbo or something. It's more it's more of just a uh, straight adventure film. Yeah. So Kurosawa is, is one of the uh, the the biggest names in international cinema. Like there's there's Bergman and there's Fellini and there's Kurosawa, and because he's such a big name, he tends to be undervalued today. Like it's not cool to like Kurosawa because everybody likes Kurosawa, right. uh, and that kind of leads to this weird situation where everybody likes him but nobody talks about him. And you know, if, if somebody asks you who's your favorite Japanese director. You know, you say Ozu, or you say Mizuguchi. Right. You rarely say Kurosawa if you want people to think you're cool. <laughs> well, at least the circles you run in. Yeah. <laughs> at least you know, in the in the uh, the rarefied the air, internet, internet film uh, <laughs> internet cinephilia. <laughs> sure. Uh, no, but I know what you mean. You know, it's the same thing with uh, with Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. You know, where you know he's kind of a gateway. Herzog too. You know, in a way. Or Martin Scorsese. Or Martin Scorsese, where he, you know, you. When you're first getting into, like, really getting into movies, you're like, whoa, there's this guy that made, like, 50 movies, and they're all awesome, and you watch them, and then you start, you know, 
delving a little deeper and you find those, like you said, you find Ozu, Mizuguchi, and all the other stuff. Um, but, and it is a shame because, come on, Kurosawa's the man. I mean, the guy's awesome. <laughs> he made a lot of really great movies. Um, he does have some very noticeable weaknesses in, in his films. He, his, uh, his use of music tends to be uh, a little banal, a little on the obvious side. That was one of Donald Ritchie's big complaints about him was that he had terrible taste in music. Mm. Uh, think of like the, uh, the, the theme in Rashomon that just sounds like a ripoff of uh, Ravel's Bolero. It just repeats over and over again. Uh, when, uh, when you're not, not, wait, wait, you're not knocking Bolero though, right? No, I'm okay, knocking, <laughs> knocking the knockoff. Because of, of I saw Bolero last week at the Seattle Symphony yeah. for the second time. Oh man, I love Bolero. Anyway, yes, yeah, I understand. I, I can dig it. Yeah, my my biggest complaint about Kurosawa is that when he tries to be politically uh, overt, he's way too overt mm. and and just is really really obvious and didactic about it. And I can I can forgive that because you know there are so many other virtues to his films. You know, just the the his framing of shots and his editing and his direction of actors is is all just fantastic. Um, but he can be a little on the nose. He can be a little obvious. Yeah, I can I, I can see that. And and you know tying that in with you know being younger and and seeing these movies at a you know a pivotal age, those things don't really bother you because mm-hmm. you're also kind of obvious and on the nose at that time. So maybe that's you know as you get older and a little more nuanced, maybe that you know irks you more. Um, I haven't really had those problems with Kurosawa, but. As I was remarking to my girlfriend earlier, um, I haven't really been watching Kurosawa movies. Like what we're saying, like I did that stretch where I watched Rashomon and I watched Seven Samurai and Stray Dog and all these other movies. And then I was thinking about, I don't think I've watched a Kurosawa movie in like five years or something. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I mean, except for rewatching Seven Samurai or something like that. Yeah, I've uh, I rewatched and watched a couple of new ones uh, earlier this year about a half dozen Kurosawa movies for uh, the other podcast I do. We did two episodes on Kurosawa, only one of which has been posted so far. Was that a slight dig, like, to the other podcast? Like, get the ball rolling? What's I'm, the problem? I'm, I'm sure that Sima will edit and post <laughs> the podcast eventually. We, we can't all be like the George Sanders show or just turning <laughs> them right. out every week. <laughs> Anyway, so I got to, to watch some of the, the more obscure ones, like The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail, which is, is a, a little one from early in his career, which I, which I really love. And I got to rewatch that and, and reconfirm that I, I still love it. Uh, also, I got, I got to watch The Idiot, which is a, a fascinating failure of a movie. It's like his most experimental film that just, it just is a mess and it just doesn't work at all. But there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. And uh, No Regrets for Our Youth is one that I, I hadn't ever seen before and didn't really know anything about, but it stars at Sugahara, and it is a, a terrific movie, and it's Kurosawa being political at, at his best. Uh, it's definitely a one, one if, uh, if the only Kurosawas you've seen are the big-named ones, like the, the Ikaru and the Yojimbo and the Ron, uh, seek out No Regrets for Our Youth. That is, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, he's uh, he's great. Um, what would you if you had to do a top three? What would you pick? Well, Seven Samurai is the best movie ever. Yes. Uh, Ron is one of the best movies ever. Yeah. And for number three, 
I'd probably go with Yojimbo. So all all uh, all samurai movies. Yeah, but it's it's really hard because I like I like so many of them about the same. Like if you ask me tomorrow, I. I'd give you a completely different answer. I mean, Seven Samurai would still be number one, but right, you know, Ikaru, High and Low, High and Low is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I asked the question, but I don't think I can answer it. Speaking of Ron, you know, his other Shakespeare stuff, uh, Throne of Blood, Throne of Blood is great movie. super good. And actually, there's there's a shot in uh, Harakiri that really reminded me at the, at the very end when he's fighting those guys and someone throws a spear um, and he's up against the wall and the spear hits the wall. It reminds me, of, you know the famous, you know, arrows flying it uh, to, to Sherman Feeney in, uh, in that one. Yeah. 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 Uh, Kurosawa, he's a cool guy. Check him out. With that, let's talk uh, about Takashi Miike's remake of Harakiri. おっしゃられる Okay, that was a clip from Takashi Miike's remake of Harakiri from 2011. Uh, it's basically the same plot, so I'm not going to really recount it again. Um, and the movie really doesn't deviate much from the original um, until the ending, which is, is a little different. But... Yeah, there are, there are some important differences. I think we'll get to that, though. But first, you know, what did you, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was okay. I mean, I, you know, I think... I didn't watch it under ideal conditions. Like I said, I watched it uh, a few hours after I finished the original. Um, and so, obviously, you're nitpicking it. And, you're, and you've already seen the story before, so you're, you're not intrigued by what's going on. You know exactly what's going to happen. Right. So, I, you know, I think that's a little unfair of me um, to, do, to say that. But I was trying to think of it on the way over here, and I was trying to think of, is there anything that this movie did better than the other one? And I think there's one thing, and and I, I, actually I don't, I, I take it back. It's not a thing that was done better, but there's an addition to this movie that worked really well for me. Um, I'm not saying I don't think the original needed to do this, but in this one there's that samurai armor mm-hmm. uh, that we talked about earlier, and in the original they show the armor in the beginning, and then they don't really show it again until the end, and this time. Mike goes back to it time and again where, you know, people will be discussing something and, you know, it'll cut back to this armor just sitting there silently. And I thought that was a really nice touch. And it plays into how this movie ends, which is different from the original. Yeah, there's uh, there's some interesting kind of uh, uh, tricks Mike uses with the editing, especially in the beginning. 
like in the in the beginning of of Kobayashi's film, we we start with Chijiwa and he tells his story and he gives this like long recitation as he's asking to kill himself, and then uh, he cuts from that to uh, the minion telling the retainer this story, and that's kind of slightly alighted, and then it goes to like the this conversation where where the advisors are all debating what they're going to do, and then it finally gets back to Chijiwa. And so this the whole opening um, uh, Chijiwa story takes like 40 minutes of the original film. Uh, Mike cuts that down by like 10 minutes, and the way he does it is just by cutting um, cutting out a lot of the repetitions. Like it it starts with the uh, the the Nakadai character talking to the retainer, and then instead of hearing his sole speech, we just cut from from that retainer to to him talking to his superior. And then the actual conference where they're debating what to do is cut down dramatically. So it's, it's, it's told much more efficiently and it's, it's basically assuming that we already know the story. So it's not going to drag out the basic details of the plot again for us. And I thought that was really cool. And, um, like you were saying with the, with the red armor, uh, there's these uh, kind of shot reverse shot cuts where somebody is talking and then it cuts to the armor. Like mm-hmm. we're going to see the armor's reaction mm-hmm. to what they're saying. Exactly. And yeah, then yeah. it cuts back to the other person. Yeah, exactly. That 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 was probably my favorite thing about this one as, as compared to the um, original. Um, well, you're talking about streamlining it and stuff. I actually thought that was later in the picture. I thought it was to the uh, film's detriment because... Um, Throughout the original, they cut back to the present tense um, when he's recounting the story to bring you back to where we're at. And in this one, once he starts telling the, the long story of, of, of their poverty and all that stuff, it never once cuts back. Yeah, I, re- I really didn't like that choice. And, and even uh, that whole, the whole narration of the whole central hour of the film, and, it, and it's an hour yeah. in this film, it's not narrated. It's not the character telling the retainer and all of the other samurai his story, it's explicitly his memory. Right. Because he, where, where Nakadai begins to recite the tale and the, the boss is like constantly interrupting him as like, are you done yet? Right, is right. there a point to this story? Like, right. yes, you had a hard life, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> Why do we care? I think you that's, know, I think that's a quote verbatim from the movie. I think well, yada, yada, you know, yada. It's, it's in Japanese, <laughs> but you know. Uh, <laughs> But in this, uh, Mika kind of zooms in on, on, on the figure, and, and he says, like, yes, I knew uh, Matomi Tajiwa. And then he, like, zooms in on his eyes, and then you see in italics, with his lips not moving, which means that it's his it's thought his, yeah, narration, yeah. you know, the whole story of their life together. And so, you know, I, it, it's unclear if, if he's actually telling this story, or if, if uh, of how much uh, the EE clan actually learned about his history. Right. Um, Mickey leaves that vague. Yeah, he does. And, and you, yeah. And I think you need those, um, cuts back to the present tense. Just to break, just up to break it up. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of, it kind of just, you know, plods along and you're just like, yeah, like you kind of feel like the retainer. <laughs> Is this, are we done yet? Yeah. And, and most of the changes that Mickey makes to the story are, are kind of minor. Mm-hmm. shifts to the narrative like in the in the set version usually they they work to make make the context more explicit 
Like uh, he he makes explicit Tokugawa's scheme to to undermine the the clan that the uh, the Chijiwa and uh, uh, the other families work for. Like it's he's like tricking them into into um, doing constructions on their castle that are not authorized by the shogun in order to to get rid rid of their uh, their master. But weirdly, uh, one of one of the the major changes is is um, that the the Nakadai character I didn't write down his name at all. I just called him Tutsi Nakadai in my notes. <laughs> uh, that that character uh, in in Harakiri slices through a bunch of, of samurai, ends up killing a few of them. Then he gets shot, and then he very specifically kills himself. Right, because he said all the time, to- all the time, all the time, he's telling this story. I promise you, I, I will kill myself. Yes. He doesn't kill himself in the second one. And similarly, Chijiwa's father in the first film kills himself um, out of loyalty to his superior. And he doesn't in the second film. He like dies of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's very unusual because in the, in the first film, the, the two characters are reaffirming that Harakiri is a good thing. It is a valuable thing. It is an honorable act. In the second film, they kind of reject that. So it's it's more of a rejection of the whole idea of killing yourself for honor. Well, you know, if I was standing out front of the cinema with this thing, I'd be holding a sign saying, "We want more suicide." <laughs> but you know, that's yeah. I, I I don't know why those decisions were made, um, especially because the movie, for the most part, is so faithful to the original in in so many respects. But then, yeah, there's the end. And also, after that point, the whole... It, it, it's kind of the same theme is used as, as the original, but instead of having the retainer tell his minion, you know, go out and spread the lie, all they do is they put the, um, the, put the armor, armor back, back up, together. which I think is a cool device. There's a really cool shot in, in, in Kobayashi's film where the, uh, the kind of servants in the house start cleaning up all of yes. the, the bloody remains, and you just see like their hands and feet as they're like rearranging things and taking kind of, the sheet off and, of the uh, right, yeah. and, and just kind of tidying up. So, kind of erasing everything that we have seen happen right. that that's missing from the second film. They just kind of put the armor back together and it's up there. And he never, you know, gives the line that like it's not possible that a half-starved Ronin could kill our warriors, right. which is which is what he says uh, about Nakadai. Yeah, this one it just it just has them putting the armor back or the armor is back. You don't see it, and then uh, and then their master shows up and says, "Oh, did you polish the armor?" And he's like, "Yes, because it is a sign of our strength," or something like that, which is kind of interesting. But I, I much prefer the ending in the original. I think I think the second film shifts the focus too much to the the uh, the Chijiwa family and the the Nakadai character. I think the actual, he's not really the protagonist, but the only character that really changes, that comes to a realization and has to make a choice in the film is the, is the counselor. Mm-hmm. The, uh, Saito is his name in the second film. I don't remember if he's named in the first one. But he's the one who hears the story and has to choose that he's going to enforce the code. And he's much more active in the second film in the beginning. Like, he sees the, uh, as uh, Chiji was killing himself with the bamboo sword, he sees that the guy who's supposed to chop off his head isn't doing it, 
not out of an ideological reason, which is what he gives in the first film. He's like, we're going to do this traditionally. Right. Like some people think that Harakiri is just, you know, uh, you know, an act now. And just as soon as you stab yourself, somebody will chop off your head. We do it the old fashioned way where you have to like drag the sword across your belly. Um, in the second film, it's just, the guy is just psychotic. Yeah. And, and he's kinda, a total bully. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, twist the knife. Yeah. <laughs> And and the retainer rushes up and, and chops off his head. Right. Well, can we pause for a second and talk about that scene? Because um, in the original, it's really brutal. Like, I mean, you know, you have to sit through it, and there's, you know, you you see a shocking amount of blood for something from, you know, outside of San Juro for 1962, and it, and it's a rough scene. But I think Mike goes too far in, and you know, I think. The most common thing people say about Takashi Miike is probably he went a little too far. And I, I think that's part of what he does and he means to do it. But um, I, I just felt like the, the scene in the in the new one was like too gratuitous and, and it went on for way too long. I think I think it might go on too long. But one thing he, he cuts out that is in the first film is in the first film, Chijiwa bites off his own tongue in order to to help him bleed to death. And... and that you know, you would think that a you know a kind of shock horror director like Takashi Miike would would relish the opportunity to show a guy biting off his own tongue and then have blood spurt out of his mouth, but he doesn't do that. Yeah, but he 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 spends a long time with a guy howling in pain, sweating, looking up at this guy like, "Please kill me now," which happens in the first one, but it happens a lot longer in this one. And you're just you just get uncomfortable. I don't know. I was expecting much worse out of Mike, so maybe it was more toned down from what my expectation was. Sure. No, I I went into it expecting a lot more of that too. But um, you know, but even later in the film, when his body is brought back to his home, um, Mike does show. You know, they do unveil the body, and she, you see the severed head sitting there, covered in blood, which you yeah. obviously don't see in the original. Film. Yeah, it's it's very. Uh, like his wife looks at it and you see the horror in her face, but yeah. he's covered up by like a, a white linen cloth. Uh, anyway, getting, getting back to the counselor, like he, he's active in that beginning. Uh, but, but towards the end, his role kind of diminishes in favor of just kind of the melodrama around the death of the, the wife and the kid. And we actually see the kid and the wife die and the wife kills herself in the second version. Whereas in the first one, Nakata is like, you brought Chijiwa's body back. The kid died two days later, and then three days later, the wife died. And we don't see that. We don't. There's no dead babies in the first one. Yeah, everybody dies. Well, yeah, he. Yeah, in this one, it's his body returns, the baby dies, and then she kills herself all in the span of like four minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's a little ridiculous. But be, you know, and and so all of this this melodrama is very much trumped up, and the counselor gets gets kind of lost in it. Whereas in the in the first film, he'd been interrupting. There'd been this this back and forth, this intellectual debate between him and and Nakadai about about you know the nature of honor and the, and the dictates of of their code. Um, that call can just kind of gets shunted aside in favor of the sensationalism mm-hmm. of of all of the deaths. And there's a there's this great shot in uh, in the first film where uh, the retainer finally sets his his samurai on Nakadai and they begin you know the big climactic sword fight. Kobayashi cuts away from that and follows the retainer as he walks away, and you see him kind of pacing around the the empty halls of the of his house, and you hear the the cries and the and the clashes of the sword fight, but the focus is on him and the thoughts going through his mind as he kind of is trying to 
you know, comprehend the holes in his ideology that, that Nakadai has exposed. You get like one shot of that in, yeah. in the Mike version, but really it's it's more about the fight. Well, which is funny because I actually think the fight of what is filmed in the original is far superior. I think I think um, well, for some reason the the guy is fighting with the bamboo sword instead of his actual sword. Well, he's making a statement, which is really heavy handed and stupid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in the other one, he's just I mean, he's really fighting these guys. I mean, he's taking them down. Um, it, but it, it's it's, it's, a, it's another example of of Nakadai still believes in the samurai code. And he wouldn't think of using a bamboo sure. sword because that represents his soul. Well, there's that very pivotal... He wouldn't think of selling his sword. Exactly. There's that pivotal moment in the original where he, he's he's so overwhelmed with emotion when he finds out um, that Jiwa, you know, sold his sword. And he said, I never would have even thought of doing that. And he has this moment. That doesn't happen in the, in the remake. Yeah. Do you have nice things to say about this movie? <laughs> because, I mean, I thought it was okay. No, I think, I think, I think, it's, I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's as good or as ideologically interesting or coherent as the first one. The the one thing that I would say that makes uh, that helps a lot is is the use of color. Like actually seeing that the red armor is red and just seeing the kind of redness. The the walls of the of the house aren't red, but there's a reddish tone to them that just kind of gives this tinge of blood to this whole world. Um, and some of the, the the stuff that he makes more explicit, like the the political background, I think is is welcome. I think it makes it much more interesting to to think of the Tokugawa's not as people who actually believed in the samurai code, but the ones who who manipulated its demands in order to subjugate their rivals, which is how they they trick the master into into uh, like uh, uh, committing this crime, like by just refusing to give the obvious order to rebuild his castle when he goes about it, goes ahead and rebuilds it anyway. They're like, ha, we caught you. You didn't, you did this, you know, you didn't, right. we didn't say Simon says, <laughs> so you got to kill yourself. Wouldn't it be great if anything you had to do like in government or anything, someone had to say Simon says first, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, that's basically what it is. And, and also, um, uh, the retainer gives a speech as, uh, uh, the Nakadai character is, you know, getting set up to, to kill himself. And he says that, the, you know, the reason he's brought all of his samurai here is because they're all young and they've never actually seen battle. Like, they've all... This is taking place, like, 15 years after the, the Battle of Sakikahara when the, the Tokugawa kind of consolidated control of Japan. And it's been this uh, period of peace. So all of these samurai who, you know, believe so strongly in this, in this ethos have never actually yeah. had to put it into practice. Yeah, they're just fat and lazy. Whereas the, the Nakadai and, and Chijiwa's father characters, they were actual warriors. Mm-hmm. You know, they have seen combat. And there's like a hint of that with the counselor as he has this limp. Like, he, right. he's a veteran too. But these kind of young fanatics have no idea what they're really fanatical about. Right. Yeah. Uh, let me... Okay why what is the purpose of this movie like what why like like i was saying with sanjuro it's nice to see a sequel or if you know if you do a remake to do something different and like you know we have discussed the differences in these movies but if we're being honest here these are it's basically the same movie why why do it what's the point of it why remake it yeah like why? Like for me, it, it it will almost always be. I'd just rather watch the original. <laughs> you I think, know, I think the 
the the difference in it is is in these differences that we've highlighted. Like I, I think uh, the Kobayashi's film is not a wholesale rejection of the samurai code. Mm-hmm. It's a you know the code is good, but you know we should leaven it with a little basic human decency. Sure. I think Mike is is trying to to do more of a, a wholesale rejection of it. Like just this whole ideology is bankrupt, and it it should be more based in just kind of basic human values. Um, it, it's interesting the uh, the the words that the the Nakadai figures use when they talk about uh, the samurai honor. Uh, Nakadai says uh, their system of honor is a facade, and at the the same point in the same line, the character in the second film says the the samurai honor system is a farce. And it's two very different things, and it's very specific, you know, choice there. And you know, it do you might think it could be, be translation? It might be translation, but I think it also kind of points to the difference ideologically in the two films. Well, but on a baser level, like this movie has a number of shots that echo the original. Like they're the opening shots. You know, I mean, did they film this in the same place? Because it looks exactly the same. I think they probably just just built the set yeah. to look like well it looks original. identical um and but then there are shots that come out through the movie like there's the shot there's a, a shot from above when uh uh Chijua, uh sells his goes to the pawn shop to sell his sword and it's the exact same shot and it made me think of like uh like gus van sant's psycho you know like like why why would you do... I don't well, get it. That's another film that's like ostensibly a shot-for-shot remake, but it has, you know, kind of specific changes that, that don't entirely make a whole lot of sense or, right. or improve the story, but it's an interesting experiment. And uh, one last one that I want to talk about is uh, that I, I think kind of gets to this point where the first film is, is still kind of accepting of the honor system and the second one is not. Um, it's at, you know, it's about more basic values. In order to kind of expose the hypocrisy of the, the E, uh, Tatsuya Nakadai gives like the three guys who are most instrumental in the, the cruelty of Chijiwa's death, and he cuts off their top knots, which is like the little ponytail on the top of their head, and it's very shameful for a samurai to, to not just be defeated in battle, but to you know live after you know having their hair cut off. So those three guys, instead of like showing up for work, they all call in sick pretending to be ill while they're waiting for their hair to grow back so that nobody will know that they're defeated in battle. So they're, they are basically lying when their code of honor should dictate that they should kill themselves. Right. The, the character in the second film does the same thing. He cuts off their top knots, but they don't call in sick. They just hide. And in, so instead of you know just not following the, the dictates of, of their code, they're actually cowards. Right. So it's it's not so much that their that their 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 crime is failing to follow their their system of honor. Their crime is that they're they're cowardly and psychotic. Yeah, <laughs> I can dig it. And you know I, I, that that's interesting. I think I think there's there's value in that. I I, I, I still I don't wish... know why. The, the middle section, I think I wish it had been broken up into the yes. dialogue. Yeah. Because I, I think that dialogue is really important. And like I said, I think that counselor is the most interesting character. And he gets shunted aside at the end. And I, th- I think that's a shame. Like, I think that's the thing that makes the, the Kobayashi film superior. 
That's a discussion of uh, both Harakiris. We will never talk about suicide again. Agreed, Sean? Never once. <laughs> Except for right now. We're going to listen to the band Suicide uh, with their song Cherie from their debut album. Oh, baby. for that lovely track. The interesting... Thank you, Suicide. <laughs> I would like to thank Suicide. So we will not be here next week. Sean will be in Vancouver, like we mentioned earlier. Uh, but we will return in two weeks with another uh, remake discussion. We'll be discussing um, Tarkovsky's Solaris and Steven Soderbergh's remake with George Clooney. Um, and that ties in with Clooney appearing in Alfonso Cuaron's new film, uh, Gravity, which opens on the 4th. If you were in the Hollywood area uh, this week, uh, on October 3rd, Thursday, the uh, Cine Family Silent Movie Theater, which doesn't really show silent movies much anymore, but uh, they're showing a Midnighter of uh, Tremors, which, uh, famous fact about Tremors, it's my most popular review on Letterboxd. Hey. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. You know why? Because everybody loves Tremors. That's true. It's a great movie. Yeah. So you should go check it out. Uh, it, it holds up. It's a fantastic monster movie. Uh, with the giant sandworm and Kevin Bacon. Uh, my pick for this week uh, doesn't actually start until October 18th, which is two weeks from today, but it's it's so in fitting with the with what we've talked about today that I, I had to mention it. It's the, in New York, New York, the Japan Society is starting a kind of a, a season-long tribute to Donald Ritchie, the, uh, the film scholar who, with, without whom Akira Kurosawa, Yasujiro Ozu, Kensei Mitsuguchi... Um, would have taken much longer to get introduced to the West. Like he's kind of instrumental in in bringing them to American audiences Absolutely. and European audiences. So he's one of the best. And they're playing a bunch of movies from directors that he championed. And starting on October eighteenth, they're playing High and Low, Akira Kurosawa's crime film with with Toshiro Mifune and Tatsuya Nakadai. Awesome, that's great. You can find us on the internet at thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. Uh, also on Twitter at Show, and you can email us at thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. And Mike actually tweeted this week. It was uh, I did. Was... My first tweet ever. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was, it was shaming shocking. us. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was shocking. Welcome, welcome to Web 2.0. <laughs> it was quite a trip, my friend. Um, in the interim, before we return, we are going to repost uh, an episode that's been off the air. Yeah, episode three, the uh, the charade and truth about Charlie episode has been uh, been missing for 
stupid Podbean storage space reasons, but I'm going to repost that next week. So there will actually be a George Sanders show in your uh, iTunes mailbox. Huzzah. <laughs> um, I guess that's it. I, you know, Sean, I'm not going to see you for a couple of weeks. Enjoy Vancouver. Okay. I hope you see some great movies. Uh, I, I plan to. I appreciate you giving me your Johnny Toe Blu-rays while you're gone. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and without further ado, are we going to listen to George? Yeah, no, we're going to listen uh, to, uh, uh, since my wife is such a wonderful person and is taking my kids for a week all by herself, I thought we'd play a little Queen, her favorite band. Here is uh, Freddie Mercury and the boys singing Don't Try Suicide. <laughs> Kim, you're a saint. <laughs> Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, babe. Yeah. Don't do it, don't do it. Don't